Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, I, I pray that you speak through me and when and where necessary in spite of me. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation on all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning, in the time I have with you all, I would like to preach and teach on a sermon entitled, Alliance and Defiance. Alliance and Defiance. A few minutes before Shabbat service on Friday evening down the street at Aguda Sakim, one of the youth in confirmation asked the rabbi, who is the most important character in the Torah? The rabbi said, God. It would have sounded like a jovial response until rabbi, the rabbi, Rabbi Steve, kept going and said, but God is also the most tragic character in the whole Bible. He went on to describe how God simply wants us to obey and listen, and time and time again, we flee from God's command and God's decrees. Perhaps you've heard at one time or another that the way to make God laugh is to tell her your plans. In Psalm 2, we hear of a cackling God responding to the scheming and planning of the nations. God laughs at the nations who conspire. We are situated this morning in the second chapter of our prayer book, and the chuckles of God are where our scripture this morning stops. It is not the observational comedy of Jerry Seinfeld or Larry David that is the prelude to the laughter of God, but the action of communities who want something more of their political leaders. While it may be easy and convenient to place these nations who are conspiring into categories of wicked, the questions of when the leaders of the nations will turn an ear to the injustices of their constituents, the welfare of the nation, and the violence of the current time, are not just questions of the unidentified nations in the psalm, but questions that resonate with us today. They resonate on media affiliates in Twitter spats, in conference and boardrooms, around dinner tables, and in the hearts of people right now. So I have seen Marvel's Black Panther movie four times for a, multiple, for a multitude of reasons, uh, in a spirit of confession, perhaps my lust for Michael B. Jordan, but it's also <laughs> a great film. And now that I have your attention, I am willing to serve as an ambassador for Black Panther should you have not seen the film yet. Just, you can always call me. I'm willing to go see it a fifth and sixth time. <laughs> now, the villain, the villain in Black Panther is a descendant of a royal family of a country who has abundant resources and chooses not to interfere in the injustices of the time. The villain in Black Panther is a sympathetic character because he asks, how can you sit back and watch the terror of things like the transatlantic slave trade and the oppression of those who look like you and who have and the, and the, and the oppression that people have endured and not intervene? Now, I'm going to try to make my reference with as few spoilers as possible, but as this fictional country is in the first few moments of transferring power from a father to a son, the villain comes and stakes claims to what he believes is rightfully his. 
He speaks to tribes and leaders who understand that the country's isolationism has come with the cost of injury and injustice to loved ones all around the world. Why do the nations conspire? The nations conspire, the nations plot, the nations meditate, because power must be defined. Control must be spelled out, made explicit, and the nations cannot reconcile an anointed king with the present madness surrounding them. I imagine that as these nations' leaders talk among themselves, as the rebellion begins to brew among the people, they ask good and worthy questions. Who rules the world? Who rules the world during a variety of crises among the monarchy? Who rules the world when students are gunned down in places of learning? Who is in control? Who is in control when people must live on the precipice of victory and defeat, even after exile? Who is in control when the promises of freedom are but a mirage? Who is in control when equality is but lofty rhetoric with no practical implications? And so to the nations conspiring during a time of royal transition and inauguration, and perhaps for us today, and over the histories of the millennia between, we might wonder if God is in control, because so many times it does not appear as if the sovereign God is intimately connected with the fruit of hand and dirt, but somewhere laughing, isolated in the clouds. Why do the nations conspire? Why do they rant? Why do they plot? In a world seemingly void of divine intervention, a world where it does not actually seem as if those beautiful words of Isaiah where the oppressed are free and yokes are broken are actually true, why not conspire? Surely the power and policies we can concoct here on earth are better than the God who laughs at us in the heavens laughing but perhaps not interceding. Why trust in this God? Why choose this God of Israel? Perhaps we as a collective people are wondering if the step of the wicked is more logical than the practical impotence of the righteous. Faith is a choice. We are faced with the choice to believe that God is who God says God is or God is not. If God is sovereign, then God is in control. We must choose to believe in God's power, even when we wonder if it is being realized in the present tense. The paradox of faith is that the sovereignty of God, the belief that God is in control, does not spare us from the suffering of this present moment, but a promise, but is a promise that we are not alone. The psalm calls the community to make a decision. What does it mean to be happy or blessed? What does it mean to be righteous? It means making unconventional choices. Choices that are illogical. Choices that are ridiculous. Choices that might even seem laughable. A choice like this that even amid the competing claims and seductive powers that we put our trust in the Lord. This morning's psalm ends with this word of encouragement. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. 
It is an encouraging word, but it is not necessarily a safe word. It's not necessarily a word that makes us impenetrable to the hardships and suffering of the world and worldly powers. We are asked to make the decision to take refuge in God, to depend on God, to trust God, and to endow our lives and our future to God. To the children of God here today at Westminster, faith is risky business. This psalm was often recited or sung at coronations and inaugurations of a new king. But the psalm is less about the human office and more about the divine office. However, the kingship which God anoints and ordains is not through the lens of the conventional and contextual politics of the time. The reign and the, the reign the psalm points to is past the swapping of tyrannical administrations for another tyrannical administration ruling in God's name. But a kingdom that is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the very power of God. In this Lytton journey, where we are just around the corner from Jerusalem, there is a power that knows the suffering and hardship of a world that could, and maybe even sometimes should, join in an ancient plot of conspiring together. A king who leads not with a scepter, but with a staff, constantly searching and calling us back to this unpopular, unconventional choice where we live with the knowledge of suffering that is inescapable and grace that is indescribable. A king who comes to earth in the stench of a stable, the son of a, of a modest Mary, not delivered by the hands of majestic midwives. A king who will choose in adulthood a crown of thorns and cry out to a God and a father who he feels has forsaken him. A king who will rule from the cross and an empty tomb, not from the throne and a palace. That king that we await is the gift of a God not removed from the cries of humanity in desperate need of restoration, in need of redemption and resurrection, but who will listen to the pleas of a humanity tragically flawed, prone to be enticed by the plots and schemes of a fed-up politic and offer a refuge a salvation, a king who will sacrifice the accoutrements of modern power and popular praise for the same people who will scoff, mock, disobey, and deny. The power is in him, through him, in unity with the spirit that hovers over creation, that hovers over the waters of baptism and the bread and wine at this very table. It is foolishness to take refuge in this power. It is unpopular and illogical, and it is risky, but it is refuge. It is our comfort. It is an ever-present help. It is power and powerlessness, honor and humility, redemption and reversals. This is the anointed kingdom of God, and we are asked to align ourselves with it, it is a real king on a throne, but perhaps not always the obvious choice. So this most tragic character in the Torah who stays with us from Genesis to Revelation and who we pray with and to in the Psalms 
remains patient with us. With us, this wayward, often enticed community created in her very image and allows us to choose. To choose a way of power that is void of glamour and glitz. To follow a kingdom and a king who calls all other kingships into question and proclaims that a Nazarene carpenter with a love that cannot be squashed or killed or stopped is preferable and right up and against all signs that say that such kingship and such faith is ridiculous. So may God's laughter come from the bowels and belly and shake our worldly concoctions of power and kingship and remind us that the guffaws of God remind us that God will not be vulnerable to the schemes of human imaginations, no matter how powerful. May we let the chuckles heard from the cosmos remind us that God is in control. And the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God is forever and ever. Let us take refuge. Find strength and courage and hope and wisdom in this promise. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.